Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nexus Pro. Nexus Pro is an annual or monthly subscription where members get exclusive writing, podcasts, and invites to members-only Zoom gatherings. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexuslabs.online. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast. Episode 44 is a conversation with John Petsy, partner and founder of Sky Foundry and executive director of Project Haystack. We talked about John's illustrious career in smart buildings, which started long before that term was even coined. This is a fascinating history for those of you that weren't around back then. And then we narrowed in on Tritium, Sky Foundry, and Project Haystack. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast, episode 44. All right, John, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, John Petsy, um, known as a co-founder and partner of uh, Sky Foundry, the makers of SkySpark, but uh, have had numerous positions over the years in the building automation industry. So happy to, happy to be with you. And I do want to open with a comment that what you're doing is really valuable for the industry and for bringing new people in. So I really applaud you for what, you've done, what you're doing with Nexus Labs. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for being one of the earliest members of the, the community. Appreciate yeah. that. So speaking of being early to the community, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about your career history. So a lot of this I didn't realize until you and I were emailing back and forth. So uh, let's jump through it. So obviously we're going to get to SkySpark uh, yeah, where, yeah, where you sure. started, but, but take us back to the beginning, if you would. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm an engineering school graduate. I'm, I'm an industrial engineer from WPI. And, uh, you know, I was to make things, right? Plant, equipment, metal, fabrication, welding, make products, get them in boxes, get them out the door. I mean, that was my training and education. And um, I ended up in the HVAC industry from one of my early jobs with a company who made HVAC equipment. The company's called Mitco. And what's important about Mitco is this was the original inventor of variable air volume technology, held the original patent issued in 1962 or 1963. He was a immigrant who, I uh, believe, Hungary, if I remember, and got across the Iron Curtain when he was 14 years old and came to the U.S. Wow. He was quite a guy, a brilliant guy. Also, his name was Demita Gorchev. He was also... Um, a uh, unique person, let's put it. Okay. But, um, you know, so I'm in there and you know, running manufacturing, engineering, operations manager, and, you know, how do you build VAV boxes, improve production, improve reliability. And then we get into VAV air handlers and zero leakage dampers. He had a very famous ad where he was floating in his damper on a lake. And the ad was, let's see the CEO of Honeywell do this with his dampers. <laughs> So you're okay. super, but this is interesting, super focused on energy efficiency behind the okay. iron curtain energy, you know, energy mattered. It was a, you know, a diehard theme of energy efficiency. That's why he invented VAV and zero leakage hmm. dampers and these air handlers pioneered a whole new type of VAV air handler that was more efficient than any other one. So I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm operations manager running the production facility where we have, you know, uni employees and we're making stuff with metal. Wow. Okay. So that's where I get started. Okay. And um, we won't go into all the details, but that, you know, that's fascinating. Things transition there. And okay. uh, I ended up 
get taken an interview at Andover Controls, right? Um, you know, threw a head on and went up there and I had an interview and, you know, I didn't really know what they did. The only exposure I had to controls at MITCO was mounting Robert Shaw pneumatic actuators on the VAV boxes. And then one day these really weird linear screw actuators showed up from Stafa and we didn't have any power supplies to hook these things up on the production line. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. And, and the point of this is, you know, I've had kind of unique opportunity in my career to be involved in the earliest days of applying digital technology to HVAC assistance. You know, not because I planned it, it happened, right? Yeah. So I go to Andover and I get, long story short, I got hired as um, the very first application engineer they had. So when I got okay. there, the engineers were still answering the phone from customers. Okay. And they gave me the job and they gave me a desk and they gave me a yellow pad of paper and a pencil and a brown phone. And they said, now you answer the phone from customers. <laughs> okay. And, they, and then they said, and we know you don't know anything, kid. No problem. You write it down, you come to us and we'll, we'll tell you the answer. Right. Okay. And then the guy, the VP looked at me and it was semi a smile, maybe partly a sneer. And he said, one time, John, meaning yeah. we're giving you the answer one time. You don't get to come back again. With you don't get to come questions. back. Okay. <laughs> But that was the exposure, right? And it was originally the Sunkeeper. I was programming Sunkeepers and supporting them. But then it was the AC-256, which really put Andover on the map. Anyways, um, so now I'm doing controls with computers, right? And the only exposure I had to a computer in college was uh, the mainframe in the basement of the library where you had to go with your Fortran uh, punch cards. Okay. Uh, and I was convinced that if that's what it took to program computers, they would never be used. It's never going to work. Because <laughs> I couldn't type. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Um, I left Andover to go to their biggest uh, dealer at the time on the West Coast called Comair Mechanical. And this is interesting. Now I went in the field and we did a really unique project. It was over 350 bank branches for Security Pacific Bank, okay. no longer in existence, in California with the small AC8 and 300 baud modems and a TRS-80 to program 350 and you had manually type these things out right okay. all over California and stuff so you know the type of thing of being in the basement of a building on a white bucket programming control systems that happens that's reality that's know? real okay yeah. and, and what year would this have been in just to just uh that was uh 84 okay yeah 84 yeah. So I was just wondering because we're before. still before I was born. We haven't got yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was born but, yet. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, the, the math <laughs> will get tough here. But anyways, <laughs> so that was a big Andover dealer, and I left there. I went back to Andover, so that's my second time back, and I ran what was now technical support and documentation and repair and all that type of stuff. Okay. Um, and then I left there in '86 to join Teletrol. And joined Teletrol, you know, noteworthy thing about Teletrol, that company was owned by Dean Kamen, the inventor of the Segway, um, wow. the inventor, original inventor of automated infusion pumps for delivery of drugs, um, you know, self-made millionaire, incredibly unique guy, one of the smartest people I ever encountered in my life, absolutely brilliant guy. But he had wandered into this building automation thing. Uh -huh. Let's just say it wasn't his bailiwick. Okay. Um, so we hired a team, small team, okay. and I came up to run the company and we got some engineers and there was some already there and they were computer and computer science guys. They weren't controls guys. And the, the unique thing that evolved out of that, you know, it's kind of like get people together for a band and you don't know what necessarily musical come out. Right. Mm -hmm. 
this wasn't the original plan, but what came out of it was these guys knew standard computer and PC technology. And we yeah. built the first control system based on true standard computer industry hardware hardware an ibm xt motherboard with a real-time operating system okay. right yeah. and which then became an at and you know and the 386 486 586 the whole thing and a standard programming language we didn't invent when we used c and okay. built libraries so we had standard-based products standard-based networking we had high-speed multi-user networking and a standard programming language wow it was a very different yeah. um, product line in the marketplace and the company was you know uh, it was reasonably successful and, you know, we had lots of deployments. Sydney Opera House did, was all teletrolls, like unbelievable, right? Okay. For a small company out, that was in New Hampshire. So well, anyway. For those of us that have never stumbled upon a teletrol controlled building, what happened to them? What, what? Okay, so they um, they finally got acquired by Philips oh, and merged okay. with Cylon. And uh, so they still are there. You know, there were a couple of generations, the product generations I was able for were called the integrator line, and then they okay. moved on and they did other things. And so that company got absorbed into Philips and okay. stuff. So, it, it, you know, it didn't go away. It just got acquired and merged and that type of thing. Okay. Um, but anyways, I left there after a while and I went to a company called Solutions Direct, uh, two-person startup based out of Atlanta, Georgia. We were the very first authorized Echelon Lawnworks distributor in the U.S. They had set a couple up internationally. We're the first one in the U.S. Okay. We sold lawn gear, but more than Echelon products, we accumulated, I believe, the very first product line from all these companies who were building a, a lawn-based sensor, a lawn-based this, a lawn-based, you know, yeah. nobody had a lawn-based full automation system, but there are a lot of people who had launched lawn-based things. Okay. And we pulled it all together. And in January 97, we had a store on the internet, we could buy stuff. That's pretty early. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, hand coding the HTML on the on the website and all that type of stuff. Um, Can you give people and, some context uh, on lawn? Because I, I think there are some beginners that may not have even stumbled yeah. on that yet so can you can, echelon you know created a, a silicon valley company created a control system network based on real advanced networking technology kind of uh, you know like ethernet like and whatever different of course and offered that to the market as a commercial product that was going to standardize communications and control systems to get away from this highly fragmented highly proprietary you know backnet was still a gleam it was just emerging at the time right so so there was a huge back there was huge war protocol wars of the 90s it was backnet and lawn which camp are you in james you know <laughs> okay. which was you know and um I was still in but fifth we, grade, so it wasn't in the camp yet. You're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had always believed in standards. That was just a kind of a thing. And that's why the whole idea of standard technology and Teletrol and then standard networking. And so, you know, it was a big proponent of it at the time. And anyway, so um, we were so the first so authorized back one mm -hmm. back that won the war back then. Yeah, absolutely. Back that won the, the war. I, th I don't think that there's still lawn systems out there. You don't hear that much about it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of factors. I think the highly um, commercial approach that Echelon took, they really put a lot of restrictions on the companies who are going to use their technology mm. okay. um, and made it 
difficult. Well, you know, I, I went back to Andover and we implemented some lawn products, but the big challenge was you couldn't make them user programmable easily. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. They really had a mindset of fixed function, configurable terminal unit mentality, hmm. right? Well, great. So now I can do just a little stuff. Right. And I think yeah. that was, a, in my opinion, that was a big barrier to their adoption. So anyways, um, okay. but then I go back to Andover and, you know, one of the things I'm very proud of is I am tied for the record as a three-time repeat offender. No one will ever beat it. Um, so there were three of us who were three-time repeat offenders. And, okay. So anyways. A lot of people leaving and going back, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So I, I ran the systems group there, and then I took over uh, as VP of product development uh, during the final stages of Continuum. And now this web technology is emerging. We ran some, you know, development projects on it and stuff. And I go to a trade show in uh, The Hague, a, a lawn work show, because we were showing off our lawn work stuff. And I met these guys who were showing me this box, this brown box, that's all web-based, right? Okay. And it was Jerry Frank and Gil Rockwell of Tritium. Okay. And one of the, they were there because they had one of the only independent integrations to LawnWorks networking that wasn't based on technology, you know, buying stuff from Echelon. They had network management tools that you needed with this network and all that. And that was very unique for someone to have an independently developed one. Hmm. Um, and they supported back then. Okay. Right? So both, right? Mm -hmm. Anyways, I was really impressed and you know, brought back the thoughts with web-based stuff and all of that. And, and uh, months later, I got a call from Jerry. Why don't you come down and join us? And I'm like, I'm kind of like, you know, Busy here, VP of product <laughs> development and over controls, you know. No, you got to come down and talk to someone. Done, I joined them. And, uh, and they were local they, to you, right? No, they were, you know, Andover's up in Massachusetts. They were down in Richmond, Virginia. Got so it. I okay. went down there, moved the whole family, pulled the plug, did all that, went down and joined them. There were about 33 people when I had joined, and they were just getting ready to close that first uh, Series A VC round. Got it. And okay. I came in into Tritium. And uh, when I resigned and you know the ceo of andover had been really good to me and i resigned you know it's a little painful and hey what are you going to do well we're going to make a software platform we're going to sell it to controls companies <laughs> and and he, john I, I hate to see you throw your career away man i mean you're, you're a really bright young guy i mean no one will ever buy software from another company uh that's awesome yeah seriously right. that 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 actually happened that's true and uh so that was a great challenge right so uh -huh. Anyways, went there, spent a key years there, uh, left, you know, joined them in 2000, left in 2006 after they'd been acquired by Honeywell. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I stayed on a while after that and then left. Okay. And uh, mainly because I got recruited to go join a, another company called Proveris. Okay. Security technology, user authentication based on biometrics that worked with your computer, worked with your door locks, could mm -hmm. work with cars. And it was really forward thinking stuff. Um, but the security industry is very different. Okay. So we'll leave it at that for the moment. We haven't have a lot of time. I, uh, my joke, I think to you in the email was, yeah, security technology, danger, Will Robinson. <laughs> I, had to, I had to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that has spent um, a few years there. That company didn't make it. In fact, some of the patents got sold to Apple. Oh, because the whole idea of authenticating on an intelligent device, they had good patents on that. And all that stuff. Anyways, okay. um, 
So I went independent for a while after that. Um, right. And I was a consultant to Constellation Energy on their real-time demand response end-to-end platform. And what end-to-end was key there. They were in the uh, you know deregulated side of the market. They mm-hmm. ran the world's, the U.S.'s largest trading desk for okay. demand. And, you know, and consumption, they had a trading desk on the third floor, which was like Wall Street, right, you know, and the whole goal was, they could arbitrage demand response with where they could sell it. And so I went in as a systems design consultant, along with uh, Anno Schulten, and we designed the architecture and system and requirements, and then they had an internal and external team of people build that to the point that they would recruit people to join the program. It was called Virtuot, and they would uh, dispatch automatically instead of calling you on the phone and saying, hey, why don't you shut something down? You've agreed that I can do things to your buildings Mm -hmm. and you get paid for it. But of course, they were arbitraging on the back end and they right there making money. off. And, of it. and, and it was, this was a working system business model for them. I'm not sure of the status of it today. It was called Virtual What? What year um, is that? So that is uh, 90. No, rather, let's see, where are we now? I like remember uh, 2009. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 2009, right? Uh, Prevera ended this 2009. Okay. And so I'm consulting to them, but not full time. And I'm doing some other gigs. And I'm trying to get uh, someone introduced me to people at Cisco. And I'm hoping to get a consulting gig there. They bought a product line. They're mm-hmm. going to get into smart and connected buildings. And they need a consultant. Great. And instead, they flew out, met me, and said, Well, we don't want a consultant. We want to hire you. Okay. And this is like the mediator. Well, the mediator is the product they had Mm -hmm. bought in, but the initiative was bigger than just the media. It was called Smart and Connected Buildings, right? Um, Which was under Smart and Connected Infrastructure. You know, so there was Smart City, Smart Buildings. The whole idea, which I thought was compelling, was that control automation data, it'll be just part of the fabric of the network. Because everything has to be networked. So, and you know, you got heavy due to processing power and all the network environment, why not? It's control plane as well. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. And also that they, you know, we're going to reinvent this Byzantine backwards industry yeah. and completely change it overnight. Like they had changed the phone industry with mm-hmm. IP phones. Yeah. And they'd been so successful with that, that in my opinion, that was a great blind spot for them. They assumed every industry could be reinvented like that in the same way. That totally. didn't happen as I think we all know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I left the air, but in between Constellation and Cisco, Brian and Frank and I got back together. He had now left Tritium. I had left No6, he left No8. We got together, started talking. Hey, what are you doing? And you know, we worked on a business plan together. What's next? Okay. Okay. So we started it before I went to Cisco, but then I was dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. I left Cisco. I came back to him. And he says, come on down. I've been building software. I've been building stuff. <laughs> okay. He's been building stuff based on the early stuff that we had thought about and everything. And I really hadn't been talking to him when I was at Cisco. And that was Sky Foundry. And it's like, I go down and talk to him. He goes, it's like, look at this data stuff, data and data. What do you think? Wow, that looks really interesting. Mm-hmm. You think we can pay the mortgages? Wow, let's give it a shot. You know? <laughs> and so we get started in, um, the company was formed in 09, but we went to market with the first product the fall of 2010, the first version of SkySpark. And, you know, so we're certainly early in data and analytics. We always have to give credit to Jim Lee, who was doing it out of Symmetrics. 
And I don't think anybody, I certainly didn't really understand what he was doing. <laughs> so yeah. but we get into this and, and uh, Brian, you know, created a software platform that is, you know, the foundation of SkySpark. And, and that's where we are today. Yeah. And uh, we've been out in the market for 11 years now. Yeah. And we finally just got to where uh, young James just graduated from his last semester of college. <laughs> so uh, that was that wow. whole story was like right before my career began. So just to catch okay. everyone up on you and I. So I started using SkySpark when I was, uh, say, two, three years out of school. So they were um, Thousand Technologies was in St. Louis. I was in St. Louis and they were a reseller and, you know, SkySpark mm -hmm. was kind of powering the back end of their platform. And so that mm -hmm. was when I started using SkySpark. Oh, okay. Um, and then obviously we started working together once I became a reseller a couple of years after that. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So I didn't you. know the early part of that story, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. They were, um, Towson was providing the software and we were using it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was at a mechanical contractor and we were okay. using their software on a couple different, uh, okay. different big deployments. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It's a tangled web, huh? Our Absolutely. industry. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. So I want to dig into uh, Tritium and SkySpark specifically, but okay. let's start with uh, given all of that, <laughs> given the history that you know about. I mean, you, you mentioned different, different facets of it, hardware versus software. Uh, the, the trouble Cisco had sort of like changing the industry. So, so why do you think this industry is behind from a technology standpoint? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I know that's your favorite question. Okay. And you want to ask like everybody. The premise of it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I do. I do. But I, I'd reward it. Okay. Why is the adoption of technology mm. behind? Yep. I won't go to say the technology's behind. This industry's invented yep. a lot of firsts. So I can give you some examples, but. And the first thing I'd say is the word split, split financial incentives, okay. split responsibilities, split buying centers, mm. split domain knowledge, right? There's so much complexity of different systems in a building, this desire to compare them to a car, I completely disagree with, right? Totally. Okay. Uh, the only car you might compare with is, you know, a custom built car you see on, you know, Motor Trend TV where they go to the junk <laughs> yeah. and they weld all this stuff together and put, okay. Cars are mass produced, tightly coupled. Buildings right. are bespoke, loosely coupled. That's a huge problem. The other mm. thing is the long capital cycle that mm. dominates the majority of the investment in a building. Yeah. All right. You put stuff in a building in a short capital cycle, but 95% of it has long capital cycle. That's how it's financed. That's how it's thought of. Right. Those are the things that cause slower adoption. It's frustrating. Um, I think there's been belief throughout the years that, well, a technology solution can break this apart. I don't believe that's true because of those, those reasons are, are yeah. they're all, and they're all there and they're just part of the reality of the built environment. And I think we'd be better off instead of wishing that some magic technology will make it go away to understand where are the pain points, where are the bottlenecks, how can we ease them and improve mm -hmm. this? I see this as in incremental, something we can incrementally improve, not something we can snap our fingers and will go away. And yeah. yesterday was this. And so I firmly believe that. So anyways. Yeah, I like the split. The word split, I use the word silos a lot. I, I also been using the word handovers a lot. There are just so many different handover yeah. points where 
especially from a digitization standpoint, just stuff just gets lost. And, you know, that adds up over and over and over again to, yeah, slower adoption. I think, I think maybe I'll, I'll change my question. I've been debating on whether to just retire the question or just modify it a little bit, but I, I still love the answers that I'm getting. So, yeah, well, that's why I wouldn't give up on the question because I think it's helped informing the audience to think that this is maybe some simple problem that, you know, we're just all dense and we haven't figured it out. Right. And that's not helping anybody. We need no. to understand the, the reality of the problem if we're going to address different pieces, but your idea of handoffs, the handoffs are between the split areas of responsibility. Yeah. I'm responsible to design it. You got to build it. Yeah. Somebody He's got to operate problem. it. You've got to optimize it and they need to improve the energy efficiency. Hey, my job was done. I designed it. You know, so <laughs> right. Gone, right. And they are, they're gone. They're not even around typically. So I think that's a really important perspective. We all need to keep in mind as we keep improving, you know, digitizing and hopefully improving the built environment. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about Tritium. So yeah, given when I started my career, I think, you know, I first heard about Jace's like pretty early on. And the, the concept was, you know, get data into the analytics. Like that's, and that's what I've been doing for a long time, but I haven't really ever had like a history lesson around, you know, the, the early days of Tritium. So before mm-hmm. Honeywell acquired it. So oh, yeah. you hinted at it a little bit, you know, we're going to go sell software to all these controls companies. Can you, can you just give us a history lesson on? on yeah, Tritium? so, you know, they started in the late 90s in the basement of Jerry Frank's house with uh, Brian Frank and later Andy Frank, who was a little younger, and uh, John Sublett. And, you know, the, the key concepts were a number one move to IP and web technologies. And now this is really early to do that. In fact, the web technologies couldn't do everything you wanted. They couldn't completely emulate it a state-of-the-art Windows-based building automation system. But they had a belief that it would. And the other thing was unifying protocols, being able to bring all the different protocols together so that they work together. So drivers to different protocols in one box, right, with a unified data model to do control, though. It was primarily about doing control right, and serving results in a standard browser. So you're, you know, there was no more fat client you used a browser. And, you know, in the very early days where you couldn't do, you know, a sophisticated things, spinning fans and all that as the fancy Windows apps. But that caught up, right? Because look at what the IT industry, the investment in the web and web technologies, mm-hmm. right? And so there was a Niagara version framework, version one, hardly anybody ever worked with that. And then there was what's called R2, which was widely deployed. And then there was AX and now Niagara 4. But the other thing about the business model was, they really believed they were, their intent was to sell this software platform to the major OEMs, okay. right? Not to, we're going to stand up a company to compete directly with Honeywell or Johnson or Siemens or whatever. It was intended to be a software platform sale. And of course, you know, I made that earlier comment. That was odd. That was different. That was not well understood and accepted, but it did happen. Every major company has a product line based on Niagara, right? Whether it's Honeywell or Siemens or Johnson, you know, Schneider, they all ended up with products based on it. Maybe not every product they sell, Mm -hmm. but it became a universal platform for connecting to diverse systems, solving that BACnet, Lawnworks, Modbus, and hundreds of other proprietary protocols, right? I mean, literally hundreds, Mm -hmm. so that people could connect to the reality of what they owned. And remember, you know, we may talk about the challenges of the new standard protocols and the new, you know, 
generation of APIs. But wheel back 20 years, it was proprietary protocols everywhere you turned, RS-45 networks. And, you know, that means it's a serial bus. That means you've got hardware involved. You know, it's not just clean IP protocol conversion. So you had to have physical hardware to do yeah. that, right? You had to yeah. have the board level stuff. So, but it became successful because it solved problems for the system integrators and contractors who, even if they were dedicated to pick a brand, they're going to sell a project. There's other stuff in the building. Right. Even if it isn't, I mean, we'll compete with Johnson. There's meters and there's this and there's that. The idea that one company could build everything that would go into every project and it would all be one protocol, it's flawed. Right, right. right? Okay. But none of those majors could see it in their own interest to embrace everybody else's systems. Oh, that okay. was key, right? Yeah. And we used to, you used to say when we were talking and selling at OEMs, we used to say, your engineering team's just as smart as, as ours. They could do this, except you can't bring yourself to let them right. integrate right. to all these. And the other thing is, if you invest all the time in a platform where there's this huge amount of engineering to support multiple protocols, you'll only be able to amortize that over your sales. Uh, We're building a platform that we get to amortize it over everybody who uses it. You know, you write a driver and it gets used a hundred or a thousand times. If you write a driver, you get to use it twice. Right? How do you amortize that? So it became yeah. an economic model. So the technology was important. The strategy was important, but the economic model was a reality that this is a horizontal problem to solve. Yeah, true. that's what treatment. And that's why even today, you know, it continues to have incredible momentum because it solves a horizontal problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, that still exists today, even if less and less are old proprietary 45 networks. They still, you know, we used to joke, we love protocols. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Bring on a new standard. That only makes more reason you need our system. <laughs> yeah. That only makes the flywheel even accelerate faster. Yeah. Talk to me about like, was there a system integrator before this? Because like what tools did they use to, to do it? Or was it a bunch of contractors? Sure. That had sure. No, they were. No, they were. This, this, you know, they weren't the first people to identify the problem. It was the first time it got commercially solved in a big way at Teletron. Okay. You know, okay. I told you we believed in standards. We built a tool set called the Open Protocol Bus. You, system integrator, could write drivers to other systems. We didn't have the team that we were going to start writing drivers and selling them. Okay. Whereas Tritium did focus and invest in that, you know, more capital to do it. But we had the tool. And if you were a you know programmer, you could write and people wrote drivers. And one of the big integrations we did at Teletrol was between ASI controls, terminal unit controls, which were... A major breakthrough, you know, based on custom silicon, you know, terminal unit controls, right? Okay. And they had a protocol and they were getting tremendous pickup by major property developers because they dramatically lowered the cost of putting DDC down to the zone level. You know what they didn't have? Anything beyond the zone level. So at Teletrol, we did an integration with them and did some of the biggest skyscrapers in the U.S. for Hans because we had the big controllers, uh, and almost okay. no terminal. And they had all the terminal unit and no big controllers. And we did that and it looked like one system. So this was being solved. Okay. But Tritium saw the vision of a horizontal platform to do it and the business model and had the, re, you know, the resources brought together to make that a product. So when somebody said, well, I got a protocol, we didn't, you know, they didn't say, well, go try to write it yourself with this kit if you know your way around programming. Uh -huh. It was like, okay, we'll write it, you know? 
and they built and built and built. There's, there's hundreds of, of protocols supported Absolutely. out there, you know, so. What was the acquisition like? like? Obviously, they built the business and you joined it to sell software to the OEMs. And then one of the OEMs comes and buys. Like, can you talk? Yeah, we were shocked. Yeah. So I'll put a little context just to that to help. I mean, you know, the industry had some major downturns there, right? You know, th this was the first stage of the web, you know, and, the, and so Tritium's out there and we've got some great projects. One of our big customers was Enron Energy Services. They were building, they called it a megawatt utility where they could do demand response and they had one of the other big trading desks so they could Okay. All right. And their big customer be is we gave them technology at Tritium that could do this, mm, right? Yeah. Remote telemetry, command and control, interface your systems, you know, control demand and all that type of stuff. But remember what happened in 2001, right? You know, 9-11, Enron, the scandal, right? Yep. And then the collapse of, you know, the overhyped web. Right. Yeah. So Tritium was moving forward, but, you know, now the investment community is like vanished from the face of the earth and we needed um, additional funding to continue on with the plan. Anyways, the capital structure and control changed and it okay. put other people other than the founders, you know, with majority ownership. And they, after a number of years, when we became successful and profitable, they decided they wanted to exit. Mm. Management team wanted to do a buyout. We tried, we tried that, but in the end, a company, you know, came calling mm -hmm. and Honeywell saw now Honeywell was a customer. Honeywell Webs was based on Tritium Niagara. It was becoming incredibly successful mm -hmm. and they pursued uh, the acquisition process and we get acquired by Honeywell. We never thought that one of our customers could acquire us because will Honeywell still sell the Johnson and Siemens and Schneider? And they did, they left that alone. Yeah. But then the other question is, will those companies continue to buy Right. And, you know, an interesting thing is uh, that I learned through that process is Honeywell and Johnson sell stuff to each other all the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Th this happens. Nobody wants to talk about it, but this, <laughs> this, this happened. Okay. And that was able to be navigated. Mm -hmm. So the company continued on with what it's viewed as the independent, but all of the brands that were selling it also, you know, the Johnson FX became an incredibly successful product yeah. and on and on and on. So um, that's a little bit of perspective on that. And I left a while, as I said, after Honeywell yeah. acquired it to do the security company. So, okay. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right, last last thing on Tritium. What what do you think about it today? We're 15 years after you've left, something like that. Is it the same place you thought it'd be, or is it different? Well, uh, you know, big, when big companies acquire small companies, things change, the culture changes, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. So I think I think you see that in U.S. market overall, big companies have trouble innovating. That's why startups do it, and startups get acquired. Right. So there's a life cycle to rapid innovation and, you know, pioneering innovation that, you know, big companies have a hard time, you know, with oh, yeah. funding innovation that doesn't have really good calculated ROI. 
hey, we're going to build this. We don't know whether it's going to be successful. <laughs> what? No, you're not. <laughs> right, right. So that's why. So, um, you know, I think uh, it's created opportunity, but it's still the most adopted platform out there for doing control and the major data source for uh, companies like ours who are taking the data to create value. Yep. Yep. Cool. Let's talk about Sky Foundry now. So go back to the, you You came back from Cisco, you and Brian got together in your basement. Well, we started, basement we started, like yeah, we started before that after the um, security company, you know, wasn't going to make it and had to be refactored. You know, I you know told the board, one of the first people to leave should be me, right? You've got an asset here that you can work with, but in a different, totally different way. Mm-hmm. And I left and so I'm independent, Brian and I get together, you know, we'd worked obviously closely through the years of, uh, Tritium and the success there, although in totally different roles, right? I mean, Brian's running the brain trust up on the fourth floor and I'm running the business down on the third floor. And okay. people would be surprised how little, you know, we actually <laughs> talked during those years. Right? Okay. Um, but anyways, we got together and started talking about this stuff. And, you know, I, I mentioned that our original business plan, we look carefully at what's happening with the cloud, Amazon Web Services and all that stuff. And, you know, this whole idea of maybe, maybe all the BS applications will move to the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we had thoughts around that. We also started looking at this data and, and it just kind of emerged in an interesting word, you know, because that's what we say, patterns emerge mm-hmm. from data with analytics. With these ideas around, hey, there's something that could be done here with the data okay. that isn't trying to displace a controls company. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing it. Nobody's truly working with the data other than putting it up on a screen and making fans spin. Okay. Right. And uh, that's another point we can get into a uh, personal right. note of, you know, I, I believe color graphics are the tail that's been wagging the dog of BAS since the early nineties. And okay. has been one of the greatest misuses of resources in mankind's right. history. Come to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> we can come back to that one. But anyways, so we saw this opportunity and, you know, Brian went off on, you know, the deeper thought about how to work with data while I was, you know, paying my bills, consulting and stuff like that. But anyways, he, he started building stuff around that while I'm off at Cisco. And then we come back and he says, you know, we got something and already got a couple of people. And, you know, he goes, I don't want to be answering the questions on the phone and getting on the plane and going out to meet the potential customers. Come on down. And you know, we started when I left Cisco, I had not yet called Brian. I made a decision to leave for my own reasons. And then I called and say, Hey, by the way, and he's like, get down here. You know, because I didn't know all he'd been doing because he was of course doing stealth mode, building this out. We got going and with version one, I mean, we uh, secured Cole's department store, you know, Uh, nationwide, huge, huge project still running to this day with one of our leading system integrators, ESI, who is now a division Mm -hmm. of uh, CBRE. Right. And, um, you know, it quickly showed people how they can get more value out of their systems by working with the data, right? To identify issues, problems, patterns, you know, the whole series of benefits you get by using data to generate value. And uh, it went well from there. And then we had, um, we've been incredibly fortunate with the company, uh, great technology. And um, we got exposed to the GSA Fast 50 project at the time. And had the opportunity to present to consultants involved in that. And we got approved to be part of that. And our technology ended up being selected for the GSA Fast 50, which became GSA Link, which 
based on any public information we have available is the world's single largest analytics project for the built environment. Now over hundred of the largest GSA facilities mm -hmm. over 55 million square feet. Um, and that, you know, that was critically important for us, both as a sale, but also as validation and uh, proof points. You know, the GSA is, was and is very serious about running their buildings um, oh, yeah. efficiently, you know. Oh, yeah. And I, when I was at NREL, I had a chance to work on a couple of those buildings a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Before we dive into that, what were the other options? You mentioned Jim at Symmetrics. Like, what was analytics at the time? Yeah, I, I only know that Jim Lee at Symmetrics was doing it. I'm not aware okay. anybody else was. Um, the story I tell about that is the first year I went to, um, you know, Realcom. Even before they had the IBCOM, we went to Realcom and we got a 10-foot booth. And, you know, I'm known because I've been around with three. Hey, John, what are you doing now? Well, we're doing data. And I'd explain to people and they'd go, what are you doing? Tell me, yeah. explain that again. Uh -huh. Seriously, right? Because nobody was doing it. And, you know, I think the point here is about society in general is learning how to use data. This is a trend across every industry, right? Right. right. Learning how to use data to generate value. And in our industry, one of the statements I make is that, you know, the data that a device produces is more valuable than the device. And people go, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. Okay. You got a VAV box. What did it cost you? Uh, 500 bucks. Yeah. Run it wrong for a year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, certainly can't apply to a chiller. What did that cost you? 30,000. Okay. Run it wrong for a year. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. It, you know, I actually say it to make people, you know, basically react mm -hmm. because this is the point is the data is critical to everything. Right. You know, I like to make the analogies. I mean, you know, how do you think they know when the optimal time to put bathing suits on the racks are in a department store? You think somebody's going, eh, maybe this week. I don't think so. Right. They're using data, right? Mm -hmm. And what type, in what area, for what demographic? It's analytics. Well, why don't we have the same tools in buildings, right? Um, but I don't believe there were a lot of options. Somebody may come forward and say they were doing it too, you know, from what we saw that... Uh, and our big difference was we weren't doing it as a service in line with, uh, you know, our past and our mindset and Brian Frank's development capabilities. We were going to build a platform to do it that anybody could use. We weren't going to, we'll offer it as a service. You got to come to us. It was, we're going to build a platform so the entire world of system integrators and engineering firms, they can mm -hmm. implement analytics for their customers, a software platform. Yes, and that's a different mindset, right? If you're going to make shrink wrap commercial off-the-shelf software, that's different than saying, I'm going to build some software I got in the back room that I can use and glue together to do project work. Right. It's a whole different Absolutely. mindset, development requirements, et cetera. Where, where did that mindset come in? You're saying that's that was developed at Tritium? No, and, we're, we're product guys. I'm a product guy, okay. except the stuff I went to school, the build was made out of metal, right? Yeah. And Brian, that's his mindset on software is he builds products. Totally. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, so. and so what was the, like the decision at the time, like, cause SkySpark is a platform for people like me, the nerds and the people that want to set things up for their clients mm -hmm. usually. Right. Right. What was the decision at the time to go that way? Like, why did you do that versus a more sort of off the shelf, like you said, SaaS product? Oh, for, instead of SaaS. Yeah. Well, so there were two reasons for that. One, okay. you know, we were bootstrapped and um, 
you need a whole different financial backing if you're going to you know, go direct to end customers, have okay. nationwide, worldwide sales forces and oh, project yeah. delivery capability. And I, I mentioned I ran a sizable system integration group. There were three of them at Andover Controls before I took over product development. And being a system integrator and doing project work, as you know, is a different business than building okay. products. You have different accounting systems, different requirements. I mean, they are night and day, right? And I didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I realized, no, I'm not a contractor. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm not. I'm a product guy. That's what I went to school for. It's funny. My best friend in life, he became a contractor. He's <laughs> unbelievably successful, but I would never do what he did for the last 30 years of his life. Right. right? right. You know, mm-hmm. five o'clock in the in a.m. in the truck. No, I, no, I don't want to do that. You know, contracting is 24 hour day, really tough, right? It's a very tough, but it's, you know, it fits a certain type of people. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's certain types of people. So we knew we weren't going to do that. And the whole SaaS thing, that's a separate question. Um, When I joined Brian, we went with the original business, or in fact, before I went to market, Back in the consulting stages, we took different business plans out to people we knew, you know, mutual respect and talk to them. And as much as this cloud stuff was really interesting, we came away with the belief that if we are cloud only, that's key, we can say goodbye to 50% of the market. Mm-hmm. You can say what you want. There are companies who can't move their data to the cloud, be dependent on the cloud, whatever. Yep. Okay. But that's not to say cloud is bad. And in fact, our platform is extensively used by service providers who use it yeah. as a cloud platform. But mm-hmm. we built a platform for that that could be used as a cloud platform or could be deployed on-premise. on-site. Again, it's a standard product. The third part of your question is how we decided to go to market. So, you know, early days of Andover, you know, I got towed around by the sales guys as they were building a distribution network. I didn't even know what that meant. All I knew was, John, you come in with me. We're going to you know, Oshkosh, right? Okay, we're going to meet a system integrator. In fact, they weren't even called that. We're going to meet a dealer. A dealer? Of what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, no, a dealer. They sell, oh, okay. And you get dragged around and learn. So I learned the ropes of distribution was there. And then at Teletrol, I built one, right? Yep. Lead building, one of my own. And then I went back to Andover and I worked with them. And at Proveris, we went through a distribution channel. So I've had... 30 plus years of understanding what's the value chain that puts technology in buildings. Yeah. Building owners don't buy a lot and install a lot of stuff on their own. Yeah. So we just, it to us, it was obvious. We're going to go through distribution. One, we're not going to hire a worldwide sales force. We will work with companies who are the worldwide sales. And number two, the implementation. I mean, that's the biggest part of the job. Those companies specialize in that. Right. So, you know, we work with reseller partners. Some of them are what you'd call a control system integrator. Yeah. But others are especially engineering firms. There are a lot of mm-hmm. they're what you would consider consulting engineering firms yeah. who use our software to deliver their services, their analysis, their commissioning, their continuous, you know, monitoring-based commissioning. And then we have the service providers who are monitoring buildings as a service, right? Using our software to monitor and analyze and dispatch or consult or recommend or all of those different types of things. Okay. That makes makes perfect sense looking back. Um, How big is Sky Foundry today? 
Yeah, so the metrics we we focus on are the external market metrics. So, you know, we have back in 2017, we validated that our software was used in over a billion square feet of facilities mm-hmm. worldwide, um, over 15,000 facilities. It's now, you know, over 20,000 facilities, best we can get. It's actually harder to get the data because we have so many service providers yeah. who are monitoring buildings and they are not required to tell us, you know. Right. You're right. They don't. So, um, so we have that, and we have our 150 plus partners worldwide. You know, with the software is installed on six continents around the world, so it's you know it's become very well adopted around the world. Our team is small, if that's your question. Um, we're an eight-person company. Wow. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, invested a lot in building tools and backend and processes and automation everywhere, right? Like kind of eat our own dog food on how you should address, you know, these data challenges and stuff. Totally. So. All right. So where's the, where's the product going in the future? So, uh, I mean, I'm going to assume that people understand the concept of collecting data into the platform, fault detection you know, that kind of thing. And what's the future of fault detection and analytics and, and yeah. what's the future of, of SkySport? Yeah, sure. So the, first of all, I want to break those out. In our mind, those are two different things. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So we make a software platform for data analytics for the built environment, the types of devices, equipment, sensors. Okay. Fault detection is one use. I consider it a subcategory, an important one of analytics, but there's other things you do with data, right? You know, it isn't all about finding something broken. It's uh, you know predictive. It's finding things degrading, right? That's right. not a fault, right? It's knowing. It's tracking KPIs. How many service calls do I have on this brand of equipment versus this brand? Hmm. I know what I'm buying for the next 20 stores, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. How do different building styles perform? I've got three different designs in my portfolio. Which one should I build next, Right. right. You know, it's working with data and the purposes and understanding of what we can do with data. That's a journey. We're all learning more and more. So, you know, that example about tracking service calls against vendor of HVAC, that comes from one of our customers. We didn't know, think of that often, you know, right? <laughs> one of the other one is true story, orientation of the sun. Okay. Okay. It's a quote from a customer, right? You know, you're supposed to do the consultative selling, right? So what would be helpful to you, James, to track so you can compare your portfolio on, you know, around energy? Can you uh, do analysis around orientation to the sun? And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I'm tired of management complaining to me that all of these stores are using too much energy, John. What is wrong with you in those stores? Well, you see they're convenience stores. They have a glass front and all of those stores are facing due south. Stop torturing every month to tell you a hundred times over. Wow, okay. Okay, I didn't come up with that insight. <laughs> no. What is that? That's data and analytics mm-hmm. and a customer use case of how data could be meaningful to them. You know, pretty well. Stores, he's finally going to be able to filter them out. So he stops getting, you know, the C-suite looking at him going, ah, you're running those stores inefficiently. No, they're cited wrong or cited inefficiently, whatever, you know? So so that's one of the things I love about SkySpark is like, I felt as someone who was serving a building owner that anything they asked me, I could then go back to my programmer and say, create this KPI or create this 
you know, analysis, report, yeah. correlation. Yeah. Right. And that and that's again, that was our goal. Fault detection happens to be a key thing that people can get their head around. Right. One of the concerns we have is that that narrows people's view of why data is important, what you can do with it. It isn't all just about. And in fact, and this is uh, public knowledge, one of the things that came out of the GSA link project and studies they've done to prove it. They've had Carnegie Mellon analyze the project and, the and verify the financial returns. They saved, I believe, approximately 50% of their savings came from maintenance and repair operations savings. Hmm. Okay. It wasn't just energy, right. right? And the other side of that, and so you'd say, well, that means false. No, it means knowing what a building needs before a truck goes there and gets there and says, well, I haven't got the stuff to fix it. I'll come back tomorrow with another truck roll. Mm -hmm. And that, that's another thing. But your question is where it's going. And um, I'll answer that with one of our most recent additions that you didn't notice and mention, which we appreciate, which was, you know, we built a complete workflow system in the product. Okay. Because, you know, analytics finds patterns in the data that have value and meaning. Right. And I remember being on stage with uh, one of our, um, you know, one of the most notable guys in our industry is now retired, Paul Oswald. We were speaking at a, a real com and him and I are both on the panel. Right. And uh, as you can tell, we, we like to joke a bit and stuff like that. And he says, hang on to your seat, John, because I'm going to I'm going to you know really get the audience here. And he, you know, we're talking about analytics and he gets up and he says, well, I want to let everybody in the audience know analytics doesn't save any money. I can picture that in the real comp. Yeah, it was great. Right. And everybody goes dead silent, you know. So what are John and I doing here? Well, the point is, it tells you what you need to address. Yep. If you get analytic results that say, James, this is broken. It's not operating right. It's inefficient. And you do nothing about it. You will save no money. Nothing. So the analytics starts a workflow process. Now, we had lots of input over the years from our partners, big and small, who are, who are dealing with this, right? Because we think, you know, I mean, the early stages, hey, I told you something's broken. James, go fix it. You know? yeah, right. But, you know, it's more complicated than that. And we took input for, um, this is a clear case of a product feature taking more time to design and define than to code. We took mm -hmm. input for multiple years on yeah. what people needed to do, right? We had people interfacing you know, our software with our open APIs with standard CMMS, you know, the Maximo, the Archibus, all of that stuff. And that can solve it for certain people, right? Automatically generate a work order, yep. right? And then it gets assigned and all that. But you know what? Those systems are pretty heavyweight, right? And oftentimes, not every operator can, you know, they don't, not everybody gets to touch those things, right? You're a technician, you may get your work assignment from it, but you never touch it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, with, with analytics, you're in there looking at something, you, the guy who knows the chili plan needs to create something. So anyways, we implemented a very comprehensive workflow tool set we call ARC, meaning the arc of the life of an issue. That's mm. where the name came from. Because that's what it has. It has a, an arc of a, of a story, an arc of a life. And we implemented that in the product and it's lightweight, it's fast, it's easy. And while you're looking at a problem, you can create an arc. You could create a work order, you could assign, or you could just flag it saying, what's going on here, right? You don't have to know, I'm gonna assign it to this person and due date it and it has these, you can just say, whoa, capture this, right? Mm -hmm. So someone else will see it. Um, and that was really, I mean, it, it could virtually be a product on its own. It was really huge. Uh, addition 
that we yeah. understood the problem, but we were working on how do you solve this again, because people are using our software for so many different oh, things, yeah. right? So we created the idea of a note, which is just a flag something and write something. We also created the idea of a ticket because yeah. one of the things you're working with Brian, fixing software defects are typically called tickets. And they yeah. actually progress differently than a work order where I got to get a wrench and a filter and a valve and I got to replace okay. it. Okay. okay. So there, there's a distinction. And the other thing we did, because you know everything's in programmable in Skyspark, you can completely define your own workflow documents, your own arc. Okay. So you're not fixed with what we did. We built like defaults, hmm. build your own with as many stages and many tags and many I descriptors, see. as many fields. Take your workflow and you can adapt our to exactly meet it, right? And that was always a thought process in our in our software. You know, people would say, "Well, what's your data model that people have to employ?" Data model, not data modeling technique. We've, we're of course a founder of Haystack, mm -hmm. and we'd say, "No, no, no." The purpose of SkySparks database technology is you should be able to model anything you have. I don't know the model of your equipment systems. You do. You better be able to model it the way you want in our software. And Haystack Tags allowed people to do that. And that became our fundamental methodology for doing semantic modeling. So anyways, that shows where we're going. Mm -hmm. It's really addressing more and more of the process of using data to generate value, right? Yeah. And so we have a number of other things in the works that, uh, you know, the development schedule is always full with, with things. We'll be introducing another major app here probably in the next 60 days that okay. you know, we'll make some noise about because it brings in yet another use case hmm. that people want to do with their data and they want to do it in an easier, simpler way. So we've kind of appified it, right? Hmm. One of the other things we app appified, if you will, was a tariff engine, right? Yep. So... The idea that you want to calculate energy costs, you want to relate energy savings, you need to make a calculation. And what do most people do? Eh, it's 12 cents a KWH. Yeah. You can put a metric on things that, hey, that's a big problem or a small one. But, you know, energy rates don't work that way, mm -hmm. right? You could use more energy and pay less depending on your rate. Or you could use the same and pay less if you get on the right rate and all that. So this very uh, kind of like non-linear factor on energy is the tariff rate and their yep. complexity. So years ago, we built a tariff engine so that you could define all the charges associated with your tariff rate, distribution, transmission, peaks, and time of day, time of year, taxes, service charges, block and range, and on and on and on. We had people from Europe, Oceania, US contribute so we could hopefully build a model that would work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, we built a GUI so it's easy to enter the charges or perceptively easier to enter the charges. Because we always told people, don't worry about the coding of the rate. Your biggest problem is can you read the document you get from the utility company? That's where, that's where people most likely had to hire a consultant. Right. Okay. And then you had to enter what it. What does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. Right. And then, you know, so now it's a point and click to enter it. But mm -hmm. now people realize, yeah, it's really the reading the document. Right. So, yeah. anyways, but that was another use case we built into the software, the workflow. We've got another one coming and, and we'll continue because this, you know, one of the things we say analytics is a journey for us, for our product, for customers, for society. Yeah. You know, it's not going away. Awesome. Yeah. Let's circle back to your graphics. I want to hear about your oh. graphics being the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> well, you ever read about crows and how they build their nests? Nope. Okay. They're very um, 
they very much like shiny objects. Okay. So they'll pick them up and bed them in their nests. Hmm. Certain birds like shiny objects. And so I, I call it the shiny object problem. Okay. Right? Okay. That, oh, 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 look what we can do. And yeah, it is cool. But one of the things that, that got me to have this opinion is when I saw being a system integrator and being involved in implementing controls, this is pre-analytics days, more money was being spent in the bid to draw pictures of the equipment than to do good control sequences. That's not right. No. That's not right. No. Okay. You know why? Because it's easier to do easier mentally to do that and to think about complex, sophisticated controls that will really optimize sophisticated systems. But no, we had spinning fans. That was, you know, bitmap was first with data that would change 74.2. Then the fan spins. Now it's 3D. <laughs> now it's shaded from a 45 degree perspective. Right. Yeah. What value have we increased? Yeah. Right. We've increased the sales value, whiz, bang, sizzle. But I would argue in some cases, we've diverted our attention, intellectual focus away from what matters, which is good, sophisticated control and control sequences, right? right. Mm -hmm. And so that was the point I was making about, you know, the graphics being the tail that wagged the dog. And in development, you, companies who are building these products would end up putting more engineers on the next version of a graphics package than on doing more control algorithms that would run better. Yeah, right? and I think that same thing is happening with SaaS products today with yes. digital twins, things like that that are out there. And yeah, it's, it and it's not there. that they don't have value in, in our presentation. Yeah. I'll say, I need to look at pictures of my equipment from time to time. But I have 5,000 pieces of equipment. That can't be how I glean information about what's happening right and wrong in my building today. Totally. It can't be. It's impossible, right? Totally. And that's the value where analytics comes in. So that was the point I, I was uh, alluding to there uh, with my uh, sarcastic comment, I guess. So. Love it. So. Uh, I, I love those anecdotes. Uh, <laughs> com commentary on the industry is just quite funny sometimes. Yeah, well, it's human. There's a lot of human nature going on here. So the shiny object problem, that's, <laughs> there you go. There you go. that's what I call it. All right. All right. Let's talk about Haystack. So this could be a, a topic that we uh, take more time to unpack on a, on a future episode, but let's talk about the founding story at least today. So you, you're talking about my evening job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Tell me about your, your night. Yeah, let me tell you about today. my night job. I've been moonlighting for a while here. <laughs> All right. So Brian and I get going, we're doing analytics and he comes to me, right? I'm, I'm the industry guy, the domain guy, Brian's the software guy, software architecture. He comes to me, hey, John, you know, one of the things involved in, in analytics is data preparation, data categorization and stuff. So go find the industry standard naming convention so that we'll be able to quickly <laughs> categorize the data coming from these systems. And I said, uh, can I just say how hilarious that question is? Oh man. It's great because you know, Brian's a software guy, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, this is this is 2010 now, you know. And, oh man. And uh, okay. And you know, I go, you know, hey, I may miss something, maybe Ashray published something. I do research. I said, okay, and I come back to Brian. I go, no, there's nothing. He goes, no, no, there has to be John. You can't have an industry with uh, no no Brian. There's nothing. Oh, man. Whoa. So he goes out and he looks at, he looks at, you know, what's happened with the early days of the semantic web, you know, think about Gmail, right? Remember I, you know, for years I had, my email was on uh, you know, with a big company, Microsoft Outlook, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to organize stuff, you had one tool folders 
And if yeah. you put an email in one folder, it is not in any other folder. <laughs> yeah. But if I put tags on an email, it can be, I can find it on this topic, this, it, so the whole tab. Anyways, he settled down to the right way to build a data modeling approach is with tags. Okay. We started doing, he's working on, working on, working on. We get together and he goes, you know, hey, this, this data tagging thing, he goes, this is critical. And this is not a competitive advantage. Hmm. This is a barrier, like for us and for everybody, this should be solved. Hmm. And so we had that conversation and Brian had the vision and then we started talking to some other people we knew in respect. We talked to people at some of the energy labs, by the way, okay? okay. And I tell the story this way, they said, yes, the industry needs to solve this problem. Well, great, let's start an open source project and do it together. And they said, great, if we apply for a grant, we might get it in two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just yeah. go do it. And so in March, we're celebrating the 10th year of Haystack in March of 2011, we stood it up, about a dozen people are involved, stood up a server, and we turned over everything we'd done to make a functional product around tagging concepts, right? Which is still early. And we turned it over to open source under the academic free license. And we encourage, come help solve this problem together. It's open source. Let's work together. And people come and say, well, you guys don't know anything about electric distribution systems. I didn't say I did, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You do. Hey, you just volunteered. Uh, in fact, that was Stephen Frank at Enrel. He came okay. in and he built out, using the methodology we defined, built out a haystack model for electrical distribution, metering systems, and all the tags you need to describe that stuff. And, and that's just a, key, a really key example of something that was really important. But the community came together, right? And that is key to what we did with Haystack. It's a true open source initiative. And I make a distinction, I think we did on one of your other calls. You know, there are companies who do development and then make it available as open source. Mm -hmm. This was developed as open source through an open source collaborative initiative, which it was very different for our industry. In fact, I think it's been one of the challenges is the BAS industry is used to having standards handed to them. Okay. Right? This is the standard. Right. And that doesn't mean you couldn't have participated, but you know, the amount of people who participate in getting there is small in general. Mm -hmm. And the methods and the, the processes are rigid and complex and mind numbing. Right. And this was how's the software world solve problems? Open source meritocracy is a better solution to that problem. Totally. And that's what we did. And people came together and it developed, you know, generation one, which was primarily the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Let's all use the same words to mark up data. And then, you know, in between generation two and three, which enhanced that with the REST API for a standard way to query, right? And then, of course, Haystack 4, you know, which will be, you know, finish its public review at uh, the upcoming Haystack Connect in May, which is okay. a, a virtual event, which implements taxonomies and ontologies and the ability for inference-based queries and RDF compatibility and all of those things that have come from openly collaborating, bringing in critique, complaint requirements to enhance the standard. Mm -hmm. So I'm the executive director. I kind of run the business side of it, even though I have 
some command of the technology, although this stuff's getting pretty sophisticated around the data. And Brian's the lead curator still, but there's lots of people contributing. We have a lot of working groups where people run with it. They run with the methodology. They bring back the consensus. It gets reviewed by the curator or curators to make sure that the methodology, the standard was implemented. And, you know, it's uh, clearly the, the most deployed tagging semantic methodology out there. It's not the only one. There's a number of them out there. As you know, you've held uh, some sessions on the different standards out there. So that's a little bit about where it's at. We're hosting what'll be our um, Haystack Connect 10-year anniversary meeting. Won't be in person, but it'll be the fourth uh, biennial event we've had. Lots of speakers from around the world talking about advancing the standard, how they're using it. You know, so Mm -hmm. that's a little bit about it. And your next question well, I was going to tell you, so in 2015, so they're every two years, right? The first one was in 2013, first okay. event, then and 15, 17, 19, 21. I remember in 2015, I was just getting started at a new job. And so I was there for a month or so and Haystack Connect was coming up and I was like, I have to go. And I can remember explaining to a bunch of sort of non-analytics people, they're commissioning energy management mm-hmm. people, trying to explain what Haystack was first and then trying to get the money to go. And uh, I, I, I failed miserably. At really? It. But I can only imagine what it's been like for you for this entire time to explain what it is and why people should care. And like, it's such a difficult topic to yeah. explain. Yeah, and the way I uh, deal with it, <laughs> without going crazy, <laughs> yeah. is until you, I relate to my own, until you encounter the problem, you don't understand the need for the solution. Exactly. And that's the thing. If you are trying to get data from different systems and work with it, you have to have that data have a semantic model so it can be interpreted, right? And one of the big things is people say, well, well, I have standard protocols. If the protocol doesn't tell you what it is, it just says, here's the name, here's the value. What is it? And one of the best examples I ever saw from this was a presentation, actually, um, when Tritium came out in support of it and John Sublet did a talk, he created a great analogy which is, first of all, one of the key things we have to help people. Haystack is not a standard naming convention for BAS points. We don't tell people what to name. And the reason is you couldn't solve it that way. Your name is James Dice. Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? How old are you? What's your job? Those are all attributes about you. Oh, we're going to build them into your name. No, (laughs) you're not going to build it into your name. (laughs) What do you do? It's a data record. Yep. And it has some structure and your credit card company has it in one way and the bank has another, whatever, right? We need a way to capture those attributes in a normalized format that can be easily exchanged between software programs and be both machine readable and human readable. That's key because one of the other things we did with that was come from the point of view of who's going to be at the front line of implementing this mm-hmm. classification. Yeah. That's the technicians who are doing a control system, right? Right. The guys out there programming, whatever. They're coming from domain knowledge. They need to be able to tag things and understand what they're doing, right? This is a supply, air, temp, sensor, degrees Fahrenheit, associated with HU1. They can understand that. You give them the vocabulary and the methodology, which again has been enhanced around, and they can do that. So we approached it from that end. In fact, when we talked to some researchers who are doing the semantic web, they said, oh, you're building a folksonomy. Mm, okay. And we thought, well, that, because they were at this, you know, deep 
computer science, RDF layer, you know, research description, which, you know, the new Haystack 4 supports RDF expression of the model. That's great. But you can't teach that to people doing buildings. Yeah. This is on, you know, this is on PhD level, you know, oh, yeah. software engineering stuff. We approached it of what do people need to do? They need to classify what it is beyond the name. And so that that had a lot to do with the philosophy and when we started. So, you know, kind of ground up. Right. And of course, we encountered the need to enhance it and, and grow it, the standard and, you know, the, the acceptance. But, yeah, if people don't understand the problem, they, they don't understand why we're doing this. Yeah. You know, um, but once people do encounter it and, and of course, now that more and more of the world is using data and there's numerous analytics companies out there. You're either doing this around a standard or you're building yet another proprietary bespoke solution that's only going to be useful for you. Why invest all that effort and maintenance of that? Let's work together to solve this together. So, awesome. awesome. That was our idea. That's awesome. Yeah, I ended up making it to the 2017 Haystack Connect because I did what every good project manager does and I built it into one of my project budgets. Oh. And I, I funded my own way. <laughs> I didn't have oh, to Saddlebrook. You were at Saddlebrook. Yes, 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 I was. Outside Tampa, yeah, it was a yep. great event. And that's where I met a lot of the people that are great members of Nexus Pro today, Tyson, mm-hmm. Matt Schwartz, the, mm-hmm. the people that I, I have great relationships with today started yeah. there. Yeah, so. they, it's, uh, you know, this is just part of the future. It has to be done. So uh, let's all work together and have one standard, you know. I'm sure you or others have heard my analogy, but I'll throw it out because I think it's so important, right? You know, HTML. Without HTML, we wouldn't be able to work with each other's websites. I couldn't read what you posted. It's a defined way of marking up your publication, your website, yeah. the text, the graphics images, right? You can't have five of those out there. You no, can't have three of those out there. There's got to be one. And you know what? Guess what? Getting there from HTML1 to HTML5, there were years of debate, uh, you know, argument, building yes. things out. And extending feature sets, look at what browsers can do today that they couldn't do with HTML. Great. That's part of the process, right? So, you know, well, Haystack doesn't have this. Great. Come on in and let's extend it. And we, our ethos has been very open. And, uh, you know, we we were the ones who reached out to Brick and Ashray that led to 223P. We've got to unify this. This is not a place for fragmentation because it's holding industry back, right? Yeah. And yeah, you can find stuff that isn't in this standard or that. That's not the point. The point is we need to work together to solve this with one. It's the only way we're going to make data easily interchangeable and break down this unnecessary cost barrier yeah. to improving the performance of the entire built environment. So. Yep. Yep. And as I told all of our members in, in January, I am very frustrated by the fact that there are a bunch of different uh, competing, I guess, efforts at this point. And yeah. I totally agree that, that we need to converge into one. So, and, and not everyone thinks that, but I'm still not convinced that it doesn't need to happen. So where do we go from here with all the different, and for people that don't know this, just like listen to John talk up to this point, there are, there's project Haystack, but then there are three or four or five, mm-hmm. depending on how far you go in the world, others at this point. And so John, where do we go from here? Where should we go from here? Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's just continuing to evangelize both what we've accomplished, how it solves the problem and the openness of the community, 
right? Mm -hmm. I'm in work, you know, through the collaboration with Ashray and Brick, we came out with a, a more defined ontology and a you know, fixed way of expressing taxonomy and RDF expressions that was important to, you know, people working at that level. You know, we have tried to be inclusive, take that in, and implement it and extend the standard continuously, right? And uh, add models for equipment that hasn't been built into the library. And I've seen a couple of challenges. One challenge I see is that open source community-based open source development hasn't been part of the fabric of our industry, mm -hmm. right? It's been the handed down standards, yep. right? Yep. Okay. And the other point is there's this, well, John, it's not in there. When are you going to do it? When are you going to come help? Right. And that's yeah, not, like you said, that isn't as, yeah, it's completely a volunteer. Lot of night jobs. Yeah. There are no paid employees, right? In Haystack, it is 100% open source, right? Um, the other point I'd make is that I see an unfortunate hangover from the protocol wars, mm. right? Yeah. Well, yep. Back mat and lawn and all that type of stuff. And the manufacturer threw them with, uh, with one and then they lost customer and whatever. And, you know, then they kind of did both and then back then emerged. I see a mental hangover there because I know that there are companies utilizing Haystack in their products who won't admit it, that who won't publicize it. Why not? Well, we don't want to throw in with Haystack. What if what if one of the other ones ends up winning? We don't want to throw down a marker. Oh, so you're saying people and in, say invested in Lawn, for instance, and ended up wasting that investment because Backnet won out, and they're yeah. Well, not only wasting the investment, but hurting their market opportunity. So I'll, I'll put it this way: This is a Tritium story. This is a true story, right? Okay. Tritium had network management tools for Lawn independently developed, right? Mm -hmm. And so we show them to people and people go, oh yeah, you're in the lawn camp. Okay, you're against that backnet stuff then. And we're like, wait a minute, I, I didn't say that, <laughs> right? Okay. And we'd show people our backnet tools and they go, oh, you're good, you're with the backnet, you're against that lawn. Whoa, Yeah. whoa, why? It's, there's this psychological thing. So I personally believe that is extended to this. The numerous companies we know who are using this who don't wanna publicly support it, admit it, whatever, because maybe they're afraid, well, if the other one becomes, I don't want to show that I was biased or whatever, even though it's, you know, it's the most developed market deployed solution in this area out there and it continues to expand. And if anybody's tried to come in and contribute and extend the standard, they would see that, you know, it's open. Um, at Saddlebrook, I don't know if you remember, there was, um, I think it was uh, some speakers from Canada and their point was, we want to model flows of energy and resources through systems, and the Haystack model doesn't do it yet. Mm -hmm. I do remember that. Well, remember that? Mm -hmm. I believe it was a, a lady from Canada yeah. who actually presented that. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what Haystack 4 includes now? You can model relationship flows of, of those resources, those phenomena. Yeah. Need the input, right? Come work on it. Come help us solve it. So. You know, I don't know what will happen. I know Haystack has a worldwide base of people who use it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it solves so many problems that we, you know, we're obviously biased. It can't help that we're human beings, but we can see other standards and we can say, okay, throw that problem at. They haven't even got to solving that problem yet. That's not an IQ thing. It means, yeah, it took, you know, we didn't get to it for the first couple of years either, but you're going to have to solve that and that and that. And that's and what that. pisses me yeah. off is that yes. every time someone starts a new standard, all of this stuff needs to get solved again Yes. in a different silo. Talk about, you know. Or not solved and people may believe it because that's another thing is the, 
depth of understanding of people who are looking to adopt a standard, those are often decision makers who don't have deep understanding of this. Yeah. So can they discern that they're looking at one that actually won't yeah. give them the end result they need, yeah. but may come from a company with a big, you know, big label, Absolutely. right? And so, I mean, you know, we've been fortunate to have Siemens and Intel was on the board for a number of years and others, but I don't know why people don't see the similarity between HTML and this, mm-hmm. right? I, I just, I don't, I, I fundamentally don't understand that, so. Absolutely. All right, so Haystack 4 is going to come out in, in May. Well, it's and- been out for, you know, for almost two years in, you know, public review and lots of commentary extension, but, you know, we're going to close the public review. Brian Frank will be making, you know, a number of presentations around it to close in the public review. Okay. doesn't mean it won't continue to advance, but right. there's a lot of people looking for that, you know, stamp it's released, right? There you go. Okay. I mean, people have been building products on it for two plus years, so. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, what else in 2021 are you excited about besides that? Well, you know, I think it's important that we see the physical world come back together. You know, there's a lot we can do virtually. You know, you and I probably wouldn't have been able to get together in person today, aside from COVID, right? So this has helped. But I believe that it's a detriment that we're not having the shows and the conferences and the collaboration and the networking in our industry. Yep. You know, um, you don't have that, you know, the serendipity that comes out of meeting people and talking about things you didn't plan. Everything's planned. Well, we are, I have a meeting with James. We're going to talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like we happen to bump each, into each other at a bar at 11 o'clock at night in Nashville, right? right. You know, right. so we need that back. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're seeing the corner turn and that will come back to some degree. I think it's going to take you know, it's not going to be back as strong as it was for a variety of reasons, but that and, you know, excited that more people understand the data is critical and they need to work with it in different ways, whether you want to make digital twins or do analytics or do all kinds of other things. The foundation is data, yeah. right? So I think we're on this journey in our industry to, you know, learn how to use data just like every other industry is all at different paces and different levels of sophistication, you know? I love that. I love that answer. It does feel like, at least in my, the projects I'm still working on from a consulting standpoint, the the value, uh, perceived value of data is only going up. Uh, and the same with yeah. analytics at, yeah. at this point. So, all right, John, this yeah. has been so much fun. Thanks so much for, for doing this. I'm glad we finally, yeah. finally got together. Yeah, I'm glad we did too. And again, appreciate what you're doing out there, helping to uh, educate the industry. It really matters. So, Doing my best. All right. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.